We are not an island in the universe. We are a participant in a great unfolding of cosmic events. And the more access we have to space, the more we can not only assure our survival on Earth, and I don't want to just survive, I want to thrive. Hello Space Watchers, I am Emma, Senior Editor of Spacewatch Global, and this is a new episode of Space Cafe Radio, your radio channel dedicated to emerging trends and live conferences in the space sector. I had the honor to meet uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, author, science communicator, and probably personal hero of anyone involved even marginally with the space sector. We met in London during the Secure World Foundation Summit, and I wanted to ask him many questions about how we should approach science communication in space and what we can do to make it even more open and democratic. But then in the end, I got really wrapped in his vision and in his voice, and so all my questions suddenly felt a bit petty. So maybe just uh, truly enjoy this incredible speaker showing you his vision of why we should all care about space. Enjoy. Neil, thanks a lot for being here with me. It's quite emotional for me. Well, space is always emotional for us all. Well, it's emotional to interview you from a, a perspective of a science communicator and a space communicator. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what I wanted to ask you. Uh, this is your specialty, right? Space? That's it. It is. Yeah. It is it. Our specialty, if we want to call it. So space has become extremely mainstream in the past uh, five years, maybe even two. What do you think of it? Well, I think some people, myself included, thought it would have become mainstream many decades ago. We were introduced to this in the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, which came out in 1968 and was imagining life in the year 2001. And it was, space wasn't crowded with anything, but it gave us ideas, for example, that you would have a space station on orbit, you would have a space shuttle, moving people back and commercial product names appeared throughout. The telephone was an AT&T telephone and the hotel, the, the residence was a Howard Johnson's residence and the space shuttle was a Pan Am space shuttle. These were big names in the day, the 1960s. So I, I remembered seeing that and realizing that if a space program were ever to become a space industry, it will need sources of money that come from places other than a tax base. It would have to be because you want to take a trip and you use your hard-earned money to visit space. And we're seeing that now. But I'm thinking that really I expected it to be happening perhaps 30 or 40 years ago. So Kubrick was a visionary and we are a bit late to respect his vision. Yeah, I feel bad. <laughs> we're, we're, we're letting them down. The, the, the visionaries were well ahead of us. So there are some textbooks that actually reported your vision about space, almost a theoretical vision in which we should approach space as a sort of a sanctuary into which we cannot really modify too much the environment. Like Mars, we should take it as it is and preserve it as it is and similar thing for the moon. Other instead think that now times have changed so much that we should approach to the moon and Mars as a resource to utilize for Earth. What do you think? I don't have an opinion. I think what we do with the space environment should be a collective agreement 
because space is above everyone's head <laughs> and space floats over all countries. I mean, think of the rules that surround airplanes. You cannot enter my airspace unless the countries have agreements. So you have to fly around, but space, space, it, there's no such boundaries. I mean, when you think about that, if I put something in orbit, it's going over your country. All right. Because otherwise it falls out of the sky. That's what orbits mean. Okay. So a whole new way of thinking about access to space needs to descend upon us. And without it, we're going to try to apply sort of previously, previously hashed out earth rules for space. And that won't always work. It won't necessarily apply. And it also relates to ownership. If you land on an asteroid and you want to use its resources, do you own the asteroid? Or is the asteroid some sort of cosmic, is it a global, how should we think of it, as a, as a resource in the service of all of humanity rather than as a commodity in the service of a capitalist goal? These, are, these have to be resolved. I can tell you that the universe is huge. It's huge. I'd be surprised if we managed to say no one can own anything in space and I'm skeptical because we didn't manage to do that on earth. So why would we all of a sudden manage to do it in space? We love private property. <laughs> yeah. So if we did it on earth, then I'd have some confidence that in space we could succeed at this, but otherwise. No, I don't believe it. It's a nice goal, but at some point there's a chance that could be violated and we should not be surprised if we see that because that reflects human behavior ever since there's been a civilization. So in this optic, probably you see important and sort of update of the Outer Space Treaty in which we start to include. Yeah, the Outer Space Treaty, that was very important in its day, just philosophically, emotionally geopolitically. And I think a lot of it still holds in terms of there's even language in there that describes the obligation to assist on orbit other countries, no matter what your relationship might be on earth. You know, there's just someone is in need and you're also in space, you go help them kind of thing. I'm thinking, what, why did we need a treaty for that? <laughs> Really? You need a treaty to help someone else who's in distress in space? I guess so, because we're human. All right. Never trust us. Never trust a human to, uh, and so, but there's essentially unlimited resources in space. And I've recently written about this in a book, a book is not out yet. It comes out in a few months. It was called Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. And it's just what life and, and geopolitics and all the ways humans interact with each other, where conflict arises, it's what that looks like when you're scientifically literate and you have a cosmic perspective, it changes everything. And so in the chapter on conflict and resolution, I say to myself, all right, Look at the history of warfare among nations, among tribes, among cultures. 
some percentage of those wars, I don't know exactly, maybe a third, probably more, but let's start with a third, are wars over access to resources. Is there some mining operations or oil or anything that we value for civilization and can put a price on it can serve as a source of conflict and has in the past. Not always. There are religious wars. There are cultural wars. But some percent relate to resources. The day we turn space into our backyard, we have access to unlimited resources. Rare earth elements are common in space. The only rare on earth. They're not so rare. Actually, I mean... They're even not particularly rare on Earth. They're just not widely distributed. So it means you need good geopolitics to gain access to it. But then, again, that's humans being divisive. All right, I need a treaty with you to dig for things that are on your soil that are not on mine. Of course, oil is that way, too, because not everyone has oil. So I think to myself, with unlimited access to resources, not only minerals and also water, comets are water and that's what they are there's other stuff in there but it's fresh water at some level okay it'd be pretty easy to sort of filter that out so you have water you have reef you have minerals we also have energy continuous access to solar power you know earth rotates in case anybody forgot so if you have always good to repeat (laughs) and earth is round just to be clear so as Earth rotates half of your time, you don't have access to the sun, basically. So, and this weather can get in the way. It would make deserts very good for solar power. But the point is, from space, you have 24-7, 365 access to power. It seems to me, the day we arrive at that, ac- that level of access to space, it will remove an entire category of human conflict on Earth. And our descendants will say, uh, mommy, daddy, people used to kill each other just because of oil in the ground or just because of what? It's everywhere in space. And you say, yes, my child, you're inheriting a better world for this. So that's a, that's a future that I think is not even unrealistically far away. I like your positive perspective. My negative perspective is going to stay. We're going to find some other reason to fight. <laughs> but anyhow, I prefer your line. Uh, okay. <laughs> Final question. Like from a communication perspective, do you think that uh, we need to update how we communicate about space? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer. My tactic, if you will, tactic sounds so, so, so strategically conniving. It, I hate that word. You're feeling. Feel ill, okay. <laughs> okay. The way I feel about this is I think people need to know as much as they can about space, about what it is and about what it isn't. People say, well, let's just go live on Mars. You know, what are you going to breathe? Okay. Well, let's be like the explorers of the 15th century and 16th century and just go there on a one-way trip. Really? Okay. Do you realize that the explorers of the... 16th century, when they crossed the Atlantic or crossed whatever large body of water and they arrived on the shores, that 
other human beings were there to meet them. <laughs> and when they stepped off the ship, they could breathe the air. And if something broke about the wooden ship, the trees in the new world were also made of wood. So there was a, a sort of continuation of forces of survival from where they left to where they arrived. And not so much when you go to Mars. If you crash land on Mars and survive, you're not rebuilding the ship from the rocks. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It's a metaphor. It doesn't hold. Correct. It's a failed metaphor. Okay. To analogize the future of space with the explorers, you have to like terraform Mars, turn it into Earth. You have to do things that we don't know how to do yet. But I still embrace the dream state that that represents. So what are the messages? I think is people, we should always keep looking up. I think that's a good advice, no matter what. And any time I come out of a building at night, I look up. Anything there to notice? Where's the moon, planets? Where did the sun just set? Maybe there's still the curtain of twilight gracing the horizon that you can gaze upon. And I think people need to realize that Earth is tiny. We're adrift in orbit, in empty space, around an ordinary star, in a galaxy that's one of a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. No one is coming to save us from ourselves. So we need two goals, many goals, but two that rise up. One of them is we need to become better shepherds of our own civilization. And to do that, it's, the solution isn't always hitting people over the head, getting them to change their ways. That's not always the solution. It could also be what new engineering or scientific advance can resolve that problem without people having to completely upturn their lives. And I'll give it a stupid example, but it, it's accurate. Up until 1910, 1905, horses were everywhere. We've been using horses to build civilization for thousands of years. Cities were filled with horses. Mm -hmm. We have horses, you have manure. Yeah, okay. New York. Especially in New York. So there's manure everywhere. So, and there's flies are in the manure and, and plus a lot of, it was before supermarkets. So markets were in the street where all the flies were. So this was just unhealthy. So what do you do? Do you find a different kind of food to give the horses so that they don't poop so much? Is there some that you can put in their food mixture so that flies don't want to reproduce to keep the fly population down? Or do you just invent the freaking car? Okay. <laughs> so, so solutions to problems are not always directly giving attention to the problem itself. It's not always. Sometimes it comes from another place, another direction. And Carl Benz, who perfects the internal combustion engine that becomes the standard for cars, he wasn't thinking, how do I get rid of manure? That was not his goal. Actually, I haven't asked him. I don't know for sure. I'm just betting that that was not his intent. So you need to fund all moving frontiers of science research because you don't know today where a solution will come that'll help you tomorrow. You just don't know. But the history of that exercise tells us that is where solutions come from. 
So you need a good memory of the past to inform your behavior of the future. And then recognize, because Earth is so small and the universe is so large, the rest of the universe needs to be folded into any creative thoughts you might have about our survival, about our future, about our safety. Yeah, you're going to want to know when the asteroid's coming. You're going to turn to someone and say, can you deflect that? Rather than just go run and buy toilet paper and water bottles for your survival. No, we, can, we know how to deflect an asteroid. There's just no funded agency in the world ready to do it. But we know the engineering that that requires. We are not an island in the universe. We are a participant in a great unfolding of cosmic events. And the more access we have to space, the more we can not only assure our survival on Earth, and I don't want to just survive, I want to thrive. And yeah, I want space to be a tourist destination so I can go up and look back on Earth. And to quote T.S. Eliot, I want to travel out there so that I can look back and see home for the very first time. Thank you very much, Neil. <laughs> Thanks for this vision. Mm-hmm. And I hope uh, we'll have the chance again to discuss about this vision, see how it proceeds. Oh, in- yeah. Well, yeah, I'm slowly, I probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Thank you. You're very good. If you want to keep the pulse of the space industry, please visit our website at www.spacewatch.global and subscribe to our newsletters. And of course, don't forget to become a space watcher. I'm Emma Gatti, Senior Editor of Space Watch Global, your independent perspective on space. See you next time. Ciao.